0: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Every now and then, a band comes along which redefines camp. Army of Lovers got their name from the Rosa von Prauheim 1979 movie, Army of Lovers, or Revolt of the Perverts, which documented the rise of gay activism in the States in the 1970s. The band was set up by Alexander Bard, who abandoned his Barbie cross-dressing project and roped in two of his entourage, Jean-Pierre Barder and Camilla Hennemark, known as La Camilla, the stunning Nigerian-Swedish model who became the face of the group, a personal friend of mine who I'm hoping I'll get for an interview at some time in the future. But this podcast belongs to Alexander Bard the orange-flamed-haired one from the videos, an intellectual whose career has spanned singing, songwriting, producing, and who is today a religious and political activist still dividing opinions. So, Alexander, look at you. I can't believe
1: it. Look at you, Steve. (laughs) It's been so long. I know. I've (laughs) I've dressed up like a Florida senior citizen. That's my look for today. And no makeup. This is Zoom. So we're in 2021 now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't need to dress up as a Florida senior citizen. I practically am. I'm
1: working hard on it. I'm working hard on my alcoholism, too. I, I haven't become an alcoholic yet, but I'm drinking as much as I possibly can whenever given the chance, and I hope I'll be turning into turning an alcoholic eventually.
0: So, yeah, yeah, it's okay. It only takes 10 years, yeah. let me tell you, Yeah,
1: yeah I, I've promised everybody I'm going to die dancing on a dance floor. Just, just like... <laughs> but weirdly, well, really, I'm,
0: I'm going to make a real big change in this uh, process right now and take you back uh, to Motala, in Motala,
1: yes. In it South sounds like it, I, I think there is a town in Mozambique called Motala, but there's another one in Sweden.
0: Now this is a real to me. I went on Google Maps. I have to admit it, and it's near um, Jan shopping order. It's near, yeah. it's near the, there. So I, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this must be a complete, an utter backwater where someone like you <laughs> grows up. Um, so I'd really like you to tell me what your youth was like, what sort of family you grew up in, and what their beliefs were, and and how that was at that time for you.
1: Well I should I should say that Motal has become one of these places that, that have now become very easy to market following COVID-19. So because it is within three hours of Stockholm. So uh, yes, they, they build all these summer houses and you you know, in, in Russia, they got the Dutch house. In Sweden, we got our Stugur. So, so you have these huge summer houses. So actually these days, this is a resort area, but it wasn't when I grew up. So you, your question is absolutely the proper one because when I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s, yeah, this was kind of a backwater, it was. So, um, and it was also very communist in Sweden. Sweden really was socialist, at least culturally in the 1970s. I mean, um, they were inspired by North Vietnam and North Korea and anything outside of that would be civilized. So when I, when I wanted to listen to hit records, you know my my beloved pop records out there. I had to sit with my sister during the night and re- listen to Radio Luxembourg, like if we were some kind of Samiist youth in Soviet, in the Soviet Union trying to to get access to these records. Even ABBA, you know, to, to hear the new ABBA single, you would actually have to listen to a foreign radio station.
0: So what music did that, you listen to yeah. back then? I mean, if it's a Radio like, if it's uh, Luxembourg, then it was really you know just pop music back then, I presume. But- yeah, but
1: I, I, what I loved was I loved the subversive version of pop music. So uh, I was very proud yesterday to find out that the new season of Britannia is using T-Rex, Children of the Revolution as its theme. And, you know, T-Rex still sounds fantastic 40 years later. And and T-Rex and Mark Bolo was my first real idol. Then I was into Gary Glitter too, since I was quite young. Maybe that wasn't such good taste on my part, but I didn't have good taste. I never had good taste. So I was into Gary Glitter uh, Uh, And and I'd be willing to forgive him just about everything because it was so cool, right? But if Gary didn't last well, neither musically or culturally, certainly Mark Boland did. So my my first major inspiration was Mark Boland and T-Rex. And I really had to listen to Mark Boland on Radio Luxembourg or find the occasional Dutch or, or British radio station to even have access to that music. It was almost impossible to get hold of in Sweden. So... Sweden, literally in the 1970s, had the highest record sales in the world per capita. Because if you liked anything and had any sort of taste, you would have to go to record store to buy it, because radio would never play it.
0: You mentioned that you were in the in your bedroom with your sister, and that's how you know the only place where you could listen to pop music.
1: Yeah, and were we played fam- cards and we
0: got drunk. Too, no, but so were, your we were, street? Yeah. <laughs> were your family strict? Were your family strict?
1: No, 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 no. I have very mixed upbringing. Uh, I grew up in Sweden. Uh, There's a strong African uh, connection to the family. Uh, I have a brother who's Black, by the way. He was adopted. And uh, so we would go to Africa when I was a kid. So we were odd in Sweden because we were bicultural. And I think the whole bicultural thing is something I took with me into the world of music and into the world of philosophy in my later careers. Because I always found that if you have at least two cultural upbringings and if you if you speak at least two languages preferably even more than that like you do as well then you're better off you become much smart much smarter you're more creative uh much more open uh i think it's a prerequisite today for being creative is to have at least least two preferably even more cultures in your own personal background so for me that was a benefit but yeah it was a backwater i had good friends there was loads of nature this was next to lake veteran it's very idyllic it's 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 sweet is most beautiful like you know it's like it's like lake forest or something like that or in in uh, in in the uk i mean it was just like stunning nature everywhere and i was happy and I, I had i had animals lived in a big farm i had goats and rabbits and they both breed a lot i knew that so uh i was a happy kid it wasn't bad but I think when I got into my teens, it it got hard. I was 13, 14 years old because I was dying to get out of there. I was dying to get out and travel and go somewhere else. And when I was 70 years old, basically my dad gave me a one-way ticket to America and said, you can go off to America and find some high schoolers in college and, you know, study in America. And if you want to return back, you get your own return ticket.
0: We're we're the same, mate. same mate.
1: I wasn't bound to becoming Swedish. That wasn't the goal for my parents at all. They just wanted to have a free and happy kid.
0: Oh, that's really nice. I mean, we're the same age, and uh, one of my biggest memories as a teenager was battling in an era where being gay was a real problem, battling with my sexuality and not being able to be open about it, and and it, that having quite an impact on me, and I think an impact in 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 essence on the rest of my life, because it sort of made me feel, even though I don't think I was, but it made me feel that I was different, to other people were you different at school
1: yes at the- but that's good <laughs> because you don't think like then they don't think like the others i mean uh, i think i'm agoraphobic essentially so if people go on a stage they're either narcissistic or agoraphobic and the difference is that the narcissist wants to stay on the stage for as long as he possibly can and doesn't want to go off the stage and he, he wants to have the flowers and, and, and be celebrated and then want to stay there and get all the applause whereas the agoraphobic is the guy who counts down the minutes, how many more minutes do I have before the concert is over or the speech is over, oh and then I'm going to walk off the stage and have what we call a rape shower in Sweden, so have a shower where I just wash away all the dirty sin and nasty shame that I've got and then I'll send off an invoice to the guys I just performed to and never ever see them again so I had this agoraphobic streak. And I remember my parents told me when I was like four or five years old that they brought me to crowd once. So it was a huge market. These, these were the days when people still went to markets, right? Not, not just Ibiza women looking for drugs, but actually people did go to markets to buy stuff, right? So it was a huge market. And I remember that I was just screaming you know, I was just like, get me out of here. Get me away from this crowd. So I was the kind of kid who was very comfortable being different. So I was kind of the kid who was both a nerd and also run the fan clubs at school. So it's like, yeah, if you would have a, a dance party and get all the kids out, you know, run a youth disco or something like that, I would do that, but I would also be the nerd at the same time. And I think that's what saved me because I think becoming a nerd is a tough struggle. Like you said, if you're gay, that's a tough struggle. I'm bisexual myself. So you, I could sort of escape from being the scapegoat guy, I wasn't, I wasn't in danger during my teenage years, like many gay people are. So I'm very grateful for gay people in that sense because I feel this close connection. I'm half gay, at least, or an amateur faggot, as I call it. So, But I, I could play around with that in my teenage years, and I was allowed and, and supposed to play around with these things. I, I remember I was the only kid at school who didn't have a curfew. So there wasn't a time where I had to go home. It's just like my dad said, no, you go home when you think it's right to go and as soon as you can get yourself a moped or, or a motorbike and get yourself a driver's license and a car and you're free because you got a car, you can drive. You can go wherever you like, whenever you like. And that kind of freedom, I think, came with this sort of mix of African and Swedish. So there was a South, South African and Ethiopian band in the family. And, and we grew up in Sweden with a Swedish mother. Her parents or her family had been missionaries in Africa. And my father had roots in Africa. So we had this mix in the family. So the bicultural thing worked to my advantage. I was allowed to be different. I was inspired to be different. And I never, ever felt that that was the problem. My problem when I grew up was that it was boring. I didn't find enough exciting people to hang out with. And that's what I started doing when I turned 17 and went to America and decided never, ever to live in the countryside again, but to live in big cities with tons of fun people around me and be inspired.
0: I mean, one of the things about being different is, and and being bisexual in in that era is you get attention um, for being different. And what's interesting is you talk about attention in your TED talks. You talk about uh, the end of capitalism and the economy of of attention. Is that where that thought was based as well? Because throughout your whole career, which I come to in you know as we talk. But throughout your co- whole career, attention has played a massive role, I think, in terms of how you've presented yourself in your music and in your videos, and later on, how you present yourself today.
1: Well, it's interesting to say that because I'm a big enemy of advertising, so I'm also an enemy of marketing. And what's interesting with the music industry was that it was so media-driven and precisely because it's so media driven, advertising didn't pay off. So you had to figure out how to communicate what you're up to and reach the right audience for what you communicated, rather than trying to find the broadest possible audience. So advertising in general is like, you, you put an ad on the TV and you sort of look away when you realize that everybody hates you for doing that. It's called spam these days for you know, deserved reasons. Um, And uh, so you look away, but you hope that somebody, it's going to stick with somebody, it's going to glue with somebody. And because it glues with somebody, you can sell your product. And that's how advertising essentially works. Now, um, I hated that to begin with. I think we all do. But in music, that was also impossible, except for the occasional poster you would put in a record store, just telling people that a certain record had had been released. You couldn't really do advertising when it came to music. And then when the music video came around, we, both you and I were instrumental. you certainly were, because you were at MTV at the time when all of this exploded. I think the record industry saw the music video as an advertising format, whereas the rest of us who worked with it, me on the production side and you on the presentation side, we were trying to make the best out of this, these works of art that we were doing music videos. Right? We knew that music video was an art form. It wasn't advertising at all because then people would have turned off MTV and they wouldn't have seen Steve Blaine tell them what was good days that week. So, you know, the, the, the thing that thrilled me about the music is the experience It got. It, it was an early adapter of what I now call the Internet Society. So we now call the Internet was something that was already functioning widely in the music industry. And I think it, it is my why I got stuck in it and got absorbed with it and wanted to stay with it before I became a philosopher was that I wanted to be music producer, songwriter and run record companies and do music publishing, I wanted to be immersed in the music industry, knowing that I'd be the first one to go into the internet age and also the first one to arrive at the crisis, which was of course when CD sales dropped dramatically in the late 1990s, profits went out of the music industry and people thought it was dead because the pirates came along and basically just hijacked everything and distributed the music as they saw, uh, as they saw fit. But I, I was also the only music industry executive in Europe who joined the pirate party. Because by then I was convinced that you can't fight against the times. i would learned that also from the music industry. If the kind of music you like is not in any longer, but is out, you will not be able to make a record next season because nobody wants to buy it because they think your music tastes become unfashionable and boring and you better move on. It's like a kick in the ass, right? So I learned from the music industry that attention would be the key thing. You don't get attention through advertising and marketing. You get attention by providing people with a product that they love, where they then go off and tell their friends. They find something that they love. They even have friends who they share taste with. And within these subcultures, the music industry has always thrived on, the idea spreads that this guy came out with a new record and it's actually really good. And by the way, he's bisexual and funny, takes tons of drugs. He's a good idol too. So you immerse yourself in this culture, the subculture, and that subculture in the music industry is completely without advertising. Whereas the rest of the economy has been ticking on with this advertising bomb. And what we're seeing now in the 2020s is that advertising no longer works. We hate it. We call it spam. We don't want it. So attention is what, attention is your ears and your eyes and your senses, what you give attention to over time. So what absorbs you, what fascinates you, what is ambivalent and fascinating to you, what is great art to you, right? That's what you give attention to. And and we're really leaving the age where money is the driving force of, of our society. We're moving into an age where attention has become the dominant mode. What fascinates us? We're completely thrilled with that question because it's the one and only question these days.
0: Now, you were in this communist enclave of Motala, and at 17, you go to the capitalist world of America. What did that experience give you, and how did it change your perspective of the world?
1: Well, the first thing that happened was when I arrived in Ohio, my host family had the radio on in the car and were listening to the latest hit records. So the parents were cool. <laughs> parents listened to hit records. Uh, you, they knew the chart. They knew that Donna Summer was number one that week with hot stuff, and they were talking about their own sex life in the bedroom because they loved that track, because it made them feel hot and like hot stuff. So they lived pop culture. America, and I think the U.K., lived pop culture at the time. Sweden did not. So when I came back to Europe, I I, I was offered to stay in America, which would have made me an American. And I've always been very, very grateful for the way American culture embraced me and my personality type.
0: You're listening to Pop! The History Makers with me, Steve Blame.
1: America was generous to my personality. But when I was 20 years old, I was in New York. I was going to go to drama school. And I decided America was not for me. Because although I loved the pop culture of America and and the closeness to pop culture that people experienced, the problem was that America was only interested in America. And I grew up interested in the world. So if I couldn't find pop records... You know, unless I went to the record store in Sweden in the 1970s, my problem in the late 1970s in America was that I couldn't get a news feed that wasn't obsessed with New York and Washington, D.C. only, which is America still today. It's the top of the information hierarchy. It, it's like the rest of us cannot avoid being informed about what happens in America. Oh, they got a demented president. Biggest news ever for months. Right. And the rest of us are just force fed that because what happens locally in the country we live seems to be you know, ignored these days, right? So that was always the problem. I don't, I didn't want to be part of that. I wanted to be part of something world, world-oriented, world inspired by music from all over the world, not just the latest pop records in the charts. And I decided to move to Europe and live either in Amsterdam or Berlin. I think it was similar to you in the sense that Amsterdam and Berlin were the two cities in the 1980s that attracted me. I didn't want to live in London. I wanted to live in Amsterdam or Berlin, and I did. So I lived in Amsterdam first and later in Berlin for years. But that's when I started. Yeah. And that's when I started exploring using technology. I was never a musician. I was hardly even a singer. But uh, I started buying the first cheap synthesizers because this was the 1980s. right? That was inspired by Eurythmics and Kraftwerk and these other synth pop bands. I realized I could probably do the same thing. This isn't too hard. And then I realized that talent for it, I could write songs to make arrangements. And I got a recording contract very quickly. Because it turned out that I had these flashy ideas of what you would do on a stage. My background was video and performance art. But then out of that, I happened to have a talent for writing three and a half minute pop songs with modern arrangements. And that's that's what got the interest of several record companies. I I even had an early start in 1983 when I met Connie Plank in Germany, who you should know. Connie Plank, he was a legend, right? He was the producer of Kraftwerk, Eurythmics, Ultravox, all these bands. He was very eccentric, an old hippie, living with several wives in, in a farmyard outside of Cologne. And I went to see him. He loved me and loved my ideas. He even signed me personally and Rita Mitsuko from France the same day. But then he died probably from a cocaine overdose, to be honest about it. So he died. And then I realized that the music industry works because I was like I was I was the cool kid that everybody wanted to talk to. And suddenly nobody else answered my phone calls because I was no longer Connie Plank's protégé. So I had that early start and learned quickly that I actually have to figure out how I become a name of my own. Somebody who's respected for my professionalism and for my talent. And a couple of years later in Sweden, I met Ola Hawkinson who was a favorite of mine. He had a great band called The Secret Service, who were not very big in the UK, except for the gay clubs, but they were huge in the rest of Europe. So they were like after ABBA, the second biggest name coming out of Sweden. And compared to Bjorn and Benny from ABBA, who were not very generous, they were into their own thing all the time. Ola was very generous in adopting the next generation, training new producers and songwriters, and running a good record company. I loved Ola. He became like my older brother, and he believed in me. He signed me in 1985 as a songwriter and a producer saying that I don't know what it is about you. You, you, I mean, you're so totally off from what everybody else is doing, but keep doing your off thing because I'm just convinced that's the next big thing to happen. I was literally the first white European guy making house music records. So I was doing house music in 1985, which is I just heard these great gay black guys from America making great dance tracks programmed so they could do disco programmed fantastic idea i don't have to hire a whole damn disco orchestra for the musicians i can just program it myself and make a disco record it's a bit clumsy but fun house music i loved it and that's how i got in, in inside the music industry and you know a year later i was the cool guy and then things started happening but I want to take you back to Amsterdam, because
0: one thing that really stands out in your Wikipedia biography is that you won't never
1: in- believe Wikipedia. And
0: so you didn't work in the sex. They don't even have my
1: birthplace or birth date right or anything. I, I just allow it to be there. As I can tell people, like if you check the first sentence of Wikipedia, it's a lie already right there. But keep it, you know. So who writes yeah. who
0: writes that you're a sex worker in Amsterdam then? Oh, that's correct. (laughs) Oh, there there you go. And I thought, okay, first of all, what does sex worker mean? Because it does mean working in the sex industry, or does it mean what's going through my head right now? No, 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 it
1: definitely is work. It's hard work. No, I, I was invited. I came to Amsterdam, and I worked as an assistant, I think it was Noel Harding I worked for first. I worked as an assistant for this was a video performance art scene that was very centered on Amsterdam in the early 1980s. Money was pumped from the tech companies, a bit like today when you go to Netflix, you know, the, the, at the time it was Sony who pumped money into whatever we were doing in Amsterdam. So we could do whatever we like. And, 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 and I, I love that atmosphere to be there. And then I had two friends, two quirky, funny guys who were selling sexual services. They were kind of a bit bored. They wanted to smoke their joints and they were good looking. So they adopted me. And I was just like, am I going to hang out with these really great looking guys and sell sex? And just like, yeah, we got a specialty for you. What? We're going to put your boots and chlorine jeans. And you're going to be Nazi skinhead. What? What? <laughs> Neat. It's like the music industry, Steve. The music industry. Niches. Everything is about niches. Find your own subculture and your set. And then you'll discover if you find your own subculture your own niche. You might as well go global. Were you popular? You might as well have well found the purpose to like Nazi that? skinheads. I was very popular. There was definitely market for this Nazi skinhead with an attitude. What? I <laughs> did it for so four bad. years. Okay? After, yeah, after doing that, yeah. what
0: did it leave you with? Did it leave you with um, some sort of attitude about uh, uh, clients of the sex industry did you did it change any of your world perception any of your perception of
1: humanity I uh, this is really funny because i'm actually doing a podcast series with leona laura leon laura leon is a really gorgeous norwegian sex worker dominatrix obviously and we're exploring what if we study sex work from a marxist perspective what if sex work is the only work Because in sex work, it's absolutely necessary to separate work and spare time. One is called sex, one is called love, right? So uh, it's beneficial to be bisexual because a lot of sex workers are bisexual. And that means they pick a partner from one gender and then they sell sex to the other gender. And that's kind of more coincidence than than the choice. It just just makes it easier. But it highlights the fact that for a sex worker, it's really, really important to make a difference between selling sexual services and having sex with people that you actually have feelings for. And that was striking to me. I I don't think I ever had sex in private with somebody that I sold sexual services to. That made it easier for me to separate the two. So yes, a, a lot of the people I sold sex to were sexually very attractive. But what you do when you do sex work is that when you meet somebody you get feelings for, you're attracted to normally, you compromise on your fantasy. So it's, it's the mix of your fantasy. The other person's fantasy becomes the sexual act. Now, when you sell sex, you sort of take away your own fantasy. It's not there. It's work. That's something you, you save for a spare time. So you go into work mode and basically you're given an offer. So, somebody says, I have this sexual fantasy that I really, really, really want to happen. And I'm willing to pay for it. So, here's the fantasy. And I'm asking you, are you willing to do it mm, with a hard on, preferably, or some, you know, it would work for you, it would turn you on. Uh, Are you willing to do it? And what would be the cost? So, essentially, it's a trade deal. And that's what's called trade. So, the trade deal essentially, yeah, yeah, sure, I could do that. Yeah. I could definitely do that with some passion. You know, you put passion into work. I'm proud of my work. I could definitely do that. Yes. And here's the price tag. And then you make the deal and uh, you conduct the ceremony, so to speak. And that's work. And I think sex workers have always fascinated me because to begin with, they're always the scapegoats of everybody else's frustrations in society. So people go after a woman and call her a whore, for example. Well, my point is that sex workers aren't the real whores. Whores are people who sell their souls to the devil, right? Sex workers actually don't. They say no. <laughs> they say no to offers they don't want to do. They're like any trader in the bazaar. They say yes to certain offers. They say no to other offers. And sometimes they say, I could do that, but the price tag has going to be higher. So you have to pay more for me to do it, right? So you do the deal and then off you go and you're proud of your work. And I found a really strong sense of unity among sex workers, both men and women, both gays and straights and anything in between and Chinese and everything. I think a lot of the good stuff that I liked about the LGBT movement was my own experience as a sex worker. And I think sex work is the place where all those sort of sexual minorities really meet and have a really sort of organic uh, meeting point. So... I was interested in this for various reasons. I did it professionally for four years, then quit. It doesn't mean that I would never ever do it again. There are perverts out there who are like old men. Believe me, they exist. So, um, but uh, I, I learned an immense, an immense amount of things from that period. Yeah, it was tough at times and rough at times, and uh, people are weird. I learned how sick and weird people actually are. <laughs> so it, it 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 got me interested in psychoanalysis. And I later became a psychoanalyst, which which is essentially taking philosophy and applied on a single human being and that human being's own life. That's what psychoanalysis is. And I I don't think I'd ever gotten as interested as I was, especially being a Nazi skin and selling to juice. Freud was my idol. (laughs) but
0: you must have actually really you know you said you became a psychoanalyst because of this but you must be able to judge people very very quickly when you're a sex worker because of the danger or the situation that you could be in so you need to be able to see who is here for the reasons you want them to be there and who is there maybe for things that uh, you don't want or may take you down another route where you don't want to go. Is that true?
1: Yeah. 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 So you have cover. So uh, the thing is that we were three guys working together. We always covered each other. So a phone call away, friend coming over. So it's like, you know, if somebody didn't play by the rules and sometimes they didn't, sometimes they even got a kick out of not playing by the rules, then, the thing you would tell them afterwards was like, and I mostly sold six to couples, right? So the, the, the thing you'd tell them right afterwards was just like, okay, um, you did what you did. You broke the rules. Um, don't call any of my friends in this town ever again because they will all know within 24 hours that you're assholes. Oh, well wow. Oops. Okay. No more fantasies explored, right? So what you essentially do is like a bazaar. What you do is that if somebody treats you unfairly, you basically lock the market for them. And if you're a good sex worker, if you're credible, if you're honest, if you're decent towards the other sex workers, again, with attention here, you get the credibility among the others. And sex workers actually do stay together way more than any profession I know of, because they have to. Then, of course, you know, besides that, I think sex workers are tougher than other people are. They have a certain, what I call a shamanoid personality, which is more experimental. They can go further when it comes to experimenting with drugs and sex and anything. They, they just have a psyche that usually can handle more than the psyches of other people are. And often because they have really tough upbringings. A lot of sex workers I've met says, yeah, I was raped when I was nine years old. You know what? This is my way of dealing with it. And it's a constructive way of dealing with it, a creative way of dealing with it. I get paid for it now, you know, and I can turn it around and I'm in charge rather than me being the victim of of, of somebody who has assaulted me, right? So I I think the current discourse in society, I hate woke, I hate victimhood cults. And all the sex workers I ever met hate that. And they hate when people who are not sex workers try to speak on their behalf and turn them into victims. Here in Scandinavia, especially in Sweden, this is constantly the case that radical feminists go out and say they speak on the behalf of sex workers who they declare are trafficking victims and all kinds of nonsense, which is blatantly untrue. So I just think that sex workers, like anybody out there, should be allowed to speak for themselves. That, that's what I learned from my four years as sex worker. And I am a member of the sex workers union today, because if you've done sex work, you're allowed to be a member. And I'm an honoured member. I go there every year to the annual meetings and I make coffee for the other girls and guys who are there.
0: And that's it for part one of this Alexander Bard interview. In part two, he talks about Army of Lovers and the political activism of today. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, follow the Linktree link and become a member and support me on this journey into music culture.